Amen. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Doing good. See a couple nods out there. Everybody doing all right? You look you look good. You look like you've survived the weekend so far. No worse for wear at least. I tell you, I'm uh, thankful to be before you this morning. Thankful to still have a voice this morning. Uh, my older two were in a volleyball tournament this weekend and um, uh, if, you, if you're a parent or a grandparent, I don't know if this is a grandparent thing or not. I don't know if grandparents do this, but uh, we parents, man, we cheer really loud. And um, as someone who's been a coach on the sidelines before, uh, to be able to kind of sit in the stands and just be a cheerleader and cheer on your children is a lot of fun. Uh, but then you realize just how old you are and how you can actually hurt your voice doing all that. And so I'm thankful by God's grace that I stand before you, uh, still being able to uh, share this morning. So uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn with me to uh, Philippians this morning. We are still continuing in our study through the letter of Philippians. This is our series that we've called Joyful Unity. And in this series, we've been exploring really Paul's letter to the church at Philippi and his instruction on what it means to become a unified church in the gospel. And as we begin to look in our text today, we're going to see that Paul now calls the church uh, to follow the example set by Jesus Christ and then to worship and adore him as Lord of all because of what it is that he has done. So as we get into our text this morning, I'm hoping that we are able to answer the question, what is or what should be the mindset of the believer in Jesus Christ? Now, Um, In light of recent events this past week, this has been an important question, an imperative question that's been on my mind. I know uh, maybe you've not been aware of this, but uh, for the past several days, I've been uh, watching news, particularly in um, our our tribe, our our Baptist circle, um, watching the news, reading articles, and even watching our executive committee uh, respond to certain things. If you're not familiar with uh, Baptist polity, then you know, and I'll tell you this morning, that we are an autonomous church within the Southern Baptist Convention, and what makes up the Southern Baptist Convention is when the churches gather, and as churches, we have a group of individuals that represent uh, the entity, which is known as the Executive Committee, and so I've been watching uh, their their meetings on video. Uh, it's been rather interesting. If you're one, of, if you're a fan of church polity and Robert's Rules of Order, uh, I would encourage you to not go back and watch those videos. Um, because they have some books that they could read and a lot that they could learn. But either way, they've had to make a lot of uh, decisions. They've had to respond to uh, quite a few hard situations. And i got to be honest with you, in, in watching our cons- executive committee work, but then also in quite a few conversations that I'm hearing myself, but then also uh, in hearing other brothers in Christ, other pastors like me, um, it's becoming clear to me that I believe we are beginning to lose our focus as Christians. You see, we are beginning to place our hope on things that are not of Jesus Christ. I think it's unfortunate, but we're living in a time now where many of our churches and many of the believers that are around us are now placing more faith in the words of man and less faith on the word of God. I mean, I got to be honest, I felt uh, this, this uh, Friday morning as I woke up, it almost felt like playing a video game. I don't know how many of you grew up playing video games, whether you, uh, you played some of the new games like the, the Xbox and the PlayStation 2000. What, I don't know what version we're on of that now. Is it the five? Are we at five? Thank you, Caleb. Thank you. I'm calling you out because you said it. Uh, do you have a five? I'm just going to ask. No, God bless you, brother. Okay. <laughs> 
Sarah was looking at you and just said, no, you do not and will not. That's the look you just got from your wife. I, I saw that. Well, uh, the Xbox, I don't even know what they're calling it now. We had the Xbox and then the 360, and I think they went back to the one. These guys don't even know how to count. I don't know what's going on there. Uh, maybe you grew up in the generation where you had the Nintendo Cube or maybe the Super Nintendo, which is the greatest thing ever known. Uh, to man, that was my generation. Before that, I had the 16-bit and the 8-bit uh, Nintendo box, if you remember that. Maybe maybe that's not registering with you. Maybe some of you had an Atari. Michelle, yeah, I see you. Steve Kramer, really? God bless you, brother. That's amazing. Oh, Jennifer just shook her head no. I'm sorry. I might have just gotten him in trouble. Um, I don't know what came out before the Atari. That all predates me. I think there were a couple other uh, massive boxes that we had to plug into our TVs. I'm really not sure how all that worked. But either way, if you've ever played a video game or if you've ever been a part of a video game world, I feel like for me right now, it's almost like we're in the midst of a video game. And when I woke up this Friday morning, it was just one of those days where I was thinking back through the different videos that I've been watching, the different meetings that I've been a part of in terms of, uh, of some of the things that I have to be a part of as a pastor um, with our association and with the executive committee and whatnot and what's happening there. And it almost felt like in a video game, you know how when you're playing a game and everything's just going wrong, like you're getting beat and there's just no way out of it? What do you do? You hit the reset button. I mean, that's the beauty of it because most of our games now auto-save, right? They just kind of save where you are. And so what do you do? You hit the reset button. And so I really, I woke up Friday morning. I really, before I opened the word of God and had my first sip of coffee, I really, my first prayer was, God, reset button today. This would be great. We just need a hard reset right now as believers. Well, coming back to our text here in Philippians chapter 2, man, I think this is exactly what Paul is calling for in the church when we see Paul begin to call the church to renew the mind or to refocus themselves in order to have a Christ-centered mindset. Now, as we get further into chapter 2 of Philippians today, I want you to notice that Paul is going to encourage the church at Philippi to focus not on the things of the world, but rather focus on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as their central mindset for all of life. In other words, what we're going to see Paul call the church to is this. Instead of living to receive, Paul's going to call the church to imitate Jesus Christ and therefore live to give and give and give some more. You see, we have a a good bit of ground to cover this morning with our passage, so let's just go ahead and, and jump into our text and really see what Paul means when he calls the church to renew the mind. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to turn with me to Philippians chapter two. We're gonna begin reading in verse five, and once you have found your place in the word, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the word of God. Now again, this is Paul writing to the church at Philippi. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you for this morning. And Father, we thank you for this time that we have now to be able just to sit and to ponder and to reflect upon your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity we've had today to sing your word. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to hear your word spoken, to pray your word. And Father, we pray in these next few moments that we have together. Father, give us clear hearts, give us clear minds. Father, teach us according to your scripture. And God, we pray that as we seek understanding of your truth, through it all, may you be glorified. So Father, help us to see you today. Help us to understand you and your call for our lives. Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity that we even have to be able to worship you through the study of your word. And so Father, we pray that you would speak and you would move. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us and thank you for delighting in us. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, before we get too far into our text this morning, I want to explain a little bit more about what I mean uh, when it comes to the renewing of the mind. You see, when we say renew the mind, as we just sung about just a few moments ago, this is not some sort of Eastern religion or Eastern Orthodox that's solely based on meditation to refocus ourselves and to better find our inner peace. Rather, I think what we're seeing in our text, and I think what Paul is reminding us of, is that we as Christians need to renew and refocus our mind on what matters. It's almost like Paul is is telling the church at Philippi this morning, look, you need to have a fresh perspective. You need to see things through a different lens. Now, I don't know if this means anything to you, but again, as a parent, in my home, we watch a lot of animated movies, and the first thing that comes to mind when I think of seeing things from a different perspective is I think of the animated movie Big Hero 6. And uh, some some of y'all laugh. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, I was a little worried I was going to be alone on this one today, but okay, praise God, I'm not. But in the, in the beginning of that movie, there's a scene where our, our main character, whose name is Hero, is with his brother and he's trying to get into this, this big tech school and he's got to come up with a project that's going to help him get in and he has no idea, he's run out of ideas. I'm sure if you've ever been in school before or you've, you've been at work before where you're, you're called upon to come up with an idea and you start writing things on paper and it doesn't seem that anything's coming out, what do you do? You crumble the paper up, you throw it away. And so literally this is this moment we see with the main character and so all of a sudden his brother brother comes into the room and and literally takes him and lifts him off the ground and flips him over upside down and begins shaking him and says sometimes you just simply need to change your perspective sometimes you just need to see things from a different angle in order to see what it is you need to do well I think this is exactly what Paul is sharing with us today in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 through 11 You see, he's saying the same thing to the local church. He's saying to you, look, local church, you need to change your perspective. 
You need to stop seeing life through the lens of the world and rather see it through the lens of Christ and not just see it, but ultimately have the same mind as Christ. Now, again, as we look at this passage this morning, I want to let you know that many scholars agree that this particular passage was actually an early hymn or, or possibly even a poetic creed. You see, the passage itself almost acts like an hourglass in shape, beginning and ending with God and eternity, and then ultimately hitting the base or hitting rock bottom in verse 8 with Jesus Christ's death on the cross. But as we're going to see in the beginning and the end, Even in the midst of Christ's death, which is right in the middle, it is God who still deserves all the glory. It is God who deserves all praise. Now, we're going to get to more of that in a moment. And i got to be honest with you, as we continue to dive into this passage, this passage, honestly, for me, as I was preparing for it this week, this was a, a hard one to prepare for, a hard one to preach, a hard one to teach, because I recognize that this particular passage is incredibly popular. I recognize that this is a passage that is often memorized. I imagine some of you probably have translations where it recognizes the fact that this is a a poetic creed or an early hymn, and so it's got it kind of indented a little bit differently uh, than the normal text. In fact, if I could be honest with you, I, I could really probably park here for several weeks unpacking this particular passage, both because of the beauty of the gospel that's found within this passage, but also because of what we can learn from this passage in terms of our own theology. But either way, what I want us to see this morning is the central theme from the text. You see, we're going to see the humility of Jesus Christ, who became a servant, dying on behalf of sinners, and doing it all for the glory of God. And as a result of what it is that Christ has done, we see that now Jesus Christ is exalted as king, that Jesus alone is our savior, and that Jesus is the one who has now set the example for us to follow. You see, because of Jesus Christ, we now have a standard of thinking and a standard of living. Now, I love what D.A. Carson says, particularly about this passage. He says, the notion of the cross serves as the supreme standard of behavior. So coming back to our text, Paul, by writing about the example of Jesus, he's going to tie together the call that he's already given the church back in verses 1 through 4 and then use this particular example to further explain the call and give instruction all the way through verse 18. So even though there are a lot of theological points that can be made in this passage, Paul wasn't looking for a fight with the church this morning. Rather, he wants the people to hear these words and ultimately to hear them and to allow these words to lead the people of God to praise God for what it is that God has done. And then not only to praise God, but then to ultimately follow the example of the sacrifice and the service that is set before us by Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, Paul believed If we do these things that are mentioned in our text today, if we renew the mind and follow Christ Jesus, then we will experience unity as God's people. So here's our truth for this morning. And I want you to hear me clearly on this today. Unity is not found in the preaching on unity. 
Unity is not found in singing about unity. Rather, unity is a result of people focusing their mind on praising God and following the example that he has set. You see, think about it this way. The more we behold the glory of God, the more we imitate his character, the more unified we will be as a church. And so Paul says to us this morning, and it all begins when we renew the mind. So this morning, we're going to explore how we can renew our minds all for the glory of God. And so first, we're going to look at verse 5 this morning, and we're going to see that first, in order to renew the mind for the glory of God, we must first have a Christ-centered mindset. Now again, look with me at verse 5. We see that Paul opens by saying this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now I want you to pay attention to the word mind and also the phrase, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, the word mind could also be translated as mindset or better yet, frame of mind. And then also we have a footnote, particularly if you're reading in the ESV with us this morning, that tells us that we also have the phrase, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so scholars have debated the meaning of this passage and debated whether Paul was arguing for our position in Christ or arguing the call to emulate the example of Jesus Christ. Now, personally, I think Paul intended to use this hymn as an example for Christians to follow. You see, he wanted believers to follow the example of Jesus as it was Jesus who set the example for humility and for unity within the congregation of believers. But the reality this morning is this. Whether you believe this passage is talking about our position in Christ or whether it argues for us to to follow the example of Christ, both of these arguments are true for us as believers in Christ today. You see, we now have position in Christ Jesus because of what Jesus Christ has done. And yes, as believers in Christ, we are also now called as his children to follow the example that he has set before us. So remember this, either way you land on this passage, don't lose sight of the fact that Paul is calling the church to unity. Paul is calling the church for unity, and he tells us that we can have it when we have a Christ-centered mindset that is ultimately rooted in humility. In other words, Paul is calling the church to pursue the attitude and the actions of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 5, we have to ask ourselves this morning, man, what is my attitude when I come together with the body of believers? What is my attitude when I am out working in the world for the glory of God? What is my attitude when I bring my heartaches and concerns before my brothers and sisters? Maybe another question we should ask this morning is, what is my mindset what is our mindset as a church? Are we, are we known for our humility? Are we as a church today known for our compassion? I mean, think about it. When you, when you turn on the news and, and you hear about what, what the world has called the American evangelicals, what are we now known by? 
If you don't know the answer to that question, let me help you. It's neither humility nor compassion. We're known more for the fights we want to get into. But you see, when we look back at our text, Paul tells us in order to renew the mind, we must first begin with a Christ-centered mindset, one that is focused on the attitude and actions of Christ, one that, that fills us with compassion, one that, one that fills us with humility. And Paul says that once we have this mindset, we can now move into the second aspect of our mind renewal, which we see this morning in verses 6 through 8. You see, in order to renew the mind for the glory of God, in order to have a Christ-centered mindset, we must have a mindset of humility. Now, in verses 6 through 8, this is where we see Paul get into the, the ministry and the call of Jesus Christ, which is what he now calls the local church to as well. Notice that Paul says, in speaking of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now let's pause right there because here Paul tells us that Jesus laid aside his pre-existent exalted position. In other words, in this moment, Paul is now reminding us of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Paul is telling the church this morning that there was never a time when Jesus did not exist. He is Alpha. He is Omega. He is the creator, not created. You see, Jesus didn't just appear as God, but rather Paul says that Jesus continues being the very nature and essence of God. Now, you may be asking this morning, okay, Pastor, why, why, why is this point so important for Paul? Why is this point so important for the local church at Philippi? Why is this even so important for us today? Well, again, I think I've shared with you before that I'm a, I'm a bit of a history nerd, okay? And, and I think, Jed, you may be able to go there with me on this. Uh, I'm going to look at uh, Jared as well. You probably can go there with me on this. We've had several conversations about this. But, and not to geek out, just to give you a little history lesson, we need to realize today that the church history has been filled with debates over the very nature of who Christ is. You see, when you go back and look at the Council of Nicaea in AD 3, uh, 325, we see two, two people, a man named Arius and another named Athanasius, who debated on the very topic of the nature and essence of Jesus Christ. And it was in this moment that most historians would argue the future of the church and what it believed about Jesus was at stake. And thankfully, by the grace of God, it was Athanasius who won the day defending the position that Jesus is fully God. Now again, as history moves forward, we see that people continued the debate. They debated who Jesus is. They debated who he is to God. There were some that came along that would deny the divine nature of Jesus Christ. There were some that would come along and deny the fullness of the deity of Christ. And then there were some who would then come who would ultimately deny the humanity of Jesus Christ to the point where by the time we get to AD 451 in church history, it led the leaders in Chalcedon to write a creed affirming both the full humanity and and the full deity of Jesus. Now again, as, as believers today, you may be asking, why is this so important to us? Well, if you look at our present day, we still have to contend with people 
about who Jesus is. We still have to to talk with people who believe that Jesus was simply a good man and nothing more. Or people who believe that Jesus is a good example to follow and nothing more. You see, we find ourselves now in a time where we need to boldly defend the glory of Jesus Christ. We need to defend the nature and the essence of Jesus Christ. Even our children, if we are not paying attention, they are beginning to learn and be taught some sort of mystical, phantom-like view of who Christ is. And the reality is, for us as believers, this flies flat in the face of Deuteronomy chapter 6 that teaches whether we sit, walk, and lie down, we have a responsibility to teach our children about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You know, this is why I'm thankful, by the way, for our children's ministry. And some of you are in the room, some of our volunteers. But in our children's ministry, whether it's our our time in the morning, our children's discipleship in the morning at 9.30, whether it's the time they're in there now, even in the evening, I am thankful for Brianna Simpson and her team and how they continue to keep the word of God in front of our kids. And so as parents, as adults, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles, as a part of the family of God, we have a responsibility to bear that burden as well. Now, coming back to our text, notice what Paul says. Notice the phrase he says, and he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, pay attention to what Paul is saying here. Paul is literally saying to the church, he's saying, look, Jesus did not consider being God grounds for getting everything that he ever wanted. Rather, Jesus saw it as an opportunity to Give. You see, Paul here is pointing the church to now follow the example of Jesus Christ as we serve one another. Now, yes, the reality is, as believers, we have everything to gain because we have Christ. But that gain may not happen on this side of eternity. That may happen in eternity in heaven with the glory of God. But while we are here, this is not about being better than other people, but rather as Christians who are following Christ, this is about giving and serving sacrificially the others who live around us. Now, let me unpack what I'm talking about. You see, Jesus could have grasped the power that was rightfully his. He had every right to. He was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We didn't make him that way. He is that way. He had every benefit of being the king of glory. He had every right to simply announce himself as the king of glory and put a stop to everything that was happening. But did he do it? No. Rather, what we see in Jesus is he led with an open hand. We see that Jesus was generous. We see that Jesus faithfully served. And so as we think about Christ... And who he is, we have to ask ourselves, man, how are we doing it following the example of Jesus Christ in humility? Are we takers based upon our status or are we givers 
because of what Christ gave us. But coming back to our text, Paul continues on and he turns his attention to Jesus coming in the flesh. He says, but he emptied himself. Now let's pause there. This passage has really caused a lot of debate in talking about Jesus giving up his deity, but that's not at all what happened. You see, I love what Tozer says about this point. He says that Jesus veiled his deity. He did not void his deity. In other words, Jesus added humanity. He never surrendered his deity. You see, Christ did not empty himself literally of his deity. Paul continues and says that Jesus took on the form of a a servant. In other words, we see that Jesus here just set aside, laid aside his sovereign rights and became a slave. In other words, it was the king of kings who would come to earth and identify himself with the lowest of society. And when you read Paul's words, all of a sudden it makes sense about what Jesus said about himself back in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where he says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself even to the point, according to John chapter 13, of washing the disciples' feet. Now, many of us read that, and we see that as a good, beautiful, and right thing to do. But do you realize in that moment that when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he was actually doing the job that was meant for a slave? And he did it in order to set the example for how we ourselves are now called to live. But Paul's not done. He continues in the text. He says, Jesus being born in the likeness of men. Now again, Paul is not saying here that Jesus was like a human, but rather Jesus was God. He is God. And so he became what he was not. He became a human. So when people saw Jesus, they saw a man. When people saw Jesus, they recognized him as a human. Now you may think, why is that so important? Because here's the reality. Even though we see all these wonderful paintings and pictures and and depictions of Jesus, Jesus did not walk around Jerusalem with some sort of glow about him. Jesus didn't walk around with some bright halo orbing around the back of his head. You see, Jesus was like us, but yet he was without sin. Again, Paul is pointing to the full humanity of Jesus Christ, and he continues, and he says, and being found in human form, there it is again, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here we hit the bottom in verse eight. You see, here's where we see that Jesus Christ's life was clearly marked by humility. Now pay attention to what's happened in the life and ministry and death of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus wasn't born in a popular city. He wasn't born in Rome but rather he was born in a stable. Jesus lived 30 years of his life in near obscurity. His ministry was marked by loving, unlovable people and serving others without 
question or consequence. And he was even crucified next to two other individuals who were known criminals. And it was Jesus who died the death deserved for sinners. It was Jesus on the cross who endured agony. It was Jesus who endured abandonment. It was Jesus who endured shame. It was Jesus who took on the full wrath of God. And notice that he did it all for the glory of God and for sinners like us. Now many of us may read verse 8 and it brings us to tears. It brings us to a point where we uh, almost pity Jesus in this moment. Some may even think, man, can you believe that mankind was able to to humble Jesus in this way? Well, I want to assure you from Paul's text this morning, no one humbled Jesus Christ. Jesus did it himself. So when you read this passage and you get to verse 8, don't look at this passage feeling sorry for Jesus Christ. He is not to be pitied here in this moment, but rather he is to be praised because this is the plan of God. You see, Jesus, and, and many of us need to get this, particularly Western Christians today, when we read this passage, Jesus stands over us. We don't stand over him. So as we look to Jesus Christ, let us be and do what Paul is talking about. Let us us be like Christ. Let us choose humility both in mindset and in service. You see, this is exactly what was prophesied about Jesus back in Isaiah 53. In fact, when you read the words of a popular author named C.S. Lewis, he says this of the humility of Christ. He says, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humility, but he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. Think on those words for a moment. Do we understand what it is that Christ Jesus has done for us? Do we ponder anew what the Almighty has done? Do we now see the call to to serve? Do we see the call to, to sacrifice in humility for the good of others, but also for the glory of God? You see, Paul has just introduced the church to what it means to have the mindset of Christ and how that mindset is now marked by humility. And now he's going to take us through the rest of our text and show us that our mindset should be on what Christ has done. So as you look at verses 9 through 11 and we continue, notice that in order to renew the mind for the glory of God, we must not only have a Christ-centered mindset on humility, but we must now have a mindset of praise and adoration. 
You see, after revealing to us the the humility of Christ's sacrifice and service, Paul now points us to why Jesus should be the one who is praised. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, let's just pause here for a moment because that that phrase, highly exalted, can also be translated into super elevate, okay? Okay. What Paul is saying to us this morning is that no one has ever been lifted up or exalted like Jesus in the history of the world. And not only has no one ever been exalted this way, but no one ever will be. You see, Paul has now established that Jesus himself is in a class all to himself. And so Paul continues... He says, so that at the name of Jesus. Now let's pause there. It's in this moment that Paul tells us that the name of Jesus Christ has now taken on new meaning because of what it is that he has done. A meaning that would eventually lead Paul to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is similar to what he said back in Philippians chapter 1, right around verses 1 and 2. You see, to call Jesus Lord meant that he was and he is greater than Caesar. Now, for the church at Philippi that Paul was writing to, even to the church at Rome, this would have been shocking for them to hear these words. But again, I love what John Piper says about these words. He says, to call Jesus Lord is to announce that the Lord is victorious over all his enemies. It's to announce that the Lord has purchased a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and we will rest in his victory. You see, Paul tells us that Jesus is the one who now rules. It is Jesus who now reigns over all, not Caesar. Paul goes on in the text and he says, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, when you read these words, what we have before us is the world's response to the universal lordship of Jesus Christ. There is a day coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Again, we don't make him Lord by our declaration. He is Lord, whether we admit it or not. But you see, as believers today, to declare Jesus Christ is Lord today, it really is the simplest form of the gospel. You see, as Christians who who gather for worship regularly, as Christians who gather for the purpose of prayer regularly, who, who spend time corporately and individually studying the word of God, this is our victory cry. And again, there will be a day where everyone will do the same. And so the question we ask is, what will that day be like for those around us? Again, as we look at history in the first century, To confess that Jesus Christ was Lord and not Caesar would have meant a death sentence for Christians. And I want to tell you that today, even in parts of our world today, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are still dealing with that same fate. But here's the reality. 
Those who confess Christ as Lord, those who do that now will not regret it when they make that same confession in glory. Now we come back to our text and notice what Paul closes with. He says, to the glory of God the Father. Here Paul shows us that the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of these things were meant to bring glory to God the Father. You see, Paul wants the church to know, and he wants us to know today, that man, when it comes to the Godhead, there is no rivalry. There is no wondering which part of the Godhead is better than the other. There is just simply delight and honor to God. And so I think there's a a lesson that we can learn from Jesus Christ in all this. Notice that Jesus didn't keep the glory for himself. Rather, his his adoration and his, his praise, it all remains the model of what it means to honor God the Father. And so here is where our hymn ends this morning. It ends exactly where it began. Giving glory to God. You see, for us this morning, I think that we can learn from Paul. And what we can learn from Paul is that when we look to the gospel, when we see the story of Jesus Christ, we see exactly what our hearts were made to do. And that is to glorify God and to bring praise to his holy name. And as you can see this morning, Paul really wanted the believers to examine their faith within their hearts, but also within their minds. Paul wanted these Christians to not only fight for the faith and to defend the gospel and to to lovingly serve one another, but he wanted them to see that in order to be able to do that effectively, you needed to be able to, to refocus the mind. And so that's exactly what he called the church to do. You see, Paul has called us to a Christ-like mindset. And in that mindset, to have, a, to have a mind of humility and at the same time to have a mind of praise and adoration to God. And so in the, in the retelling of the gospel through this hymn, Paul wanted the actions and the attitudes of the church to reflect Jesus Christ. In other words, he wanted the church to speak and to live in humility the way Christ did. Paul wanted the church to do all things, whether in action or word, for the glory of God. So what about us this morning? What do we desire? Do we desire our own goals Do we desire our own preferences? Do we desire our own attitudes? Or as believers in today who confess that Jesus is Lord, is it our desire to seek to glorify God in all that we do? You see, if we want to seek to glorify God in all things, then it's time for us to start seeing things through a new perspective. It's time for us to start seeing life through the lens of Jesus Christ. And the way we do that, according to Paul, is to first begin by renewing the mind. Let's pray together.